talking about weight. Uh, and the way we think about weight and weight loss is more body composition, meaning that you know what you weigh on a scale may not necessarily be the right goal. Um, whether it's fat loss, adding muscle, uh, the particular goal in terms of body type, and that keeps shifting with you know what we see on social media and what we think we're supposed to look like. Um, so it's really about body optimization, body composition, and meeting that goal. And different goal for different people is fine, whatever you want it to be. So by understanding the genetics of what drive fat, muscle, you know, body composition, you can better reach whatever that goal is. And the key area, whenever we think about diet and weight, you know, it's we think about what we're consuming, you know, food. And that's where we typically start. It's like exercise and food. So between exercise and food, you know, there's so much more we need to know. Uh, when it comes to food, let's start there. We typically start with behavioral genetics, meaning that it's one thing for me to tell you, here's what should be on your plate. It's a whole other thing to discuss. How are you even perceiving what that means? Uh, there's a lot of areas, very particularly when it comes to uh, diet behavior, sorry, behavioral genetics of diet uh, that are very specific to your genetics. Uh, let's start with, you know, uh, emotional eating. So people say that they have this as a habit. We can actually identify genetically who does this, meaning leaning on food is a coping mechanism. Your serotonin pathway, as we've discussed earlier, make make you more prone to stimulus, uh, which also means negative stimulus. And the body doesn't want to be in a stressed state. So when it comes to somebody bother you, irritating you, you get that, you know, bad news, uh, you get irritated and bothered. And for some people, the degree to which they experience that is exaggerated. So you don't want to be in that cortisol creating, you know, high stress, body inflaming state. And so the body wants you to be happy and it leans on food as a coping mechanism. So what we talk about is emotional eating uh, as sort of a overarching, that's what it looks like. Biochemistry, what's happening is your serotonin response is off. And so your body wants to come back to this normal state and you might take in extra calories that you don't even realize you're doing, which makes it very difficult to stick to a diet plan because you're actually perceiving that hunger is real. Sometimes people don't count those calories. We actually had a case with a, a female lawyer who did everything right, was highly stressed because in her environment, she was challenged um, versus in that male environment that she was in, in a very male-dominated firm. And so the stress would constantly make her sort of lean on food as she passed back and forth through the kitchen and the office. And she never counted that when we were talking to her about why she just couldn't lose weight. It was outside of her sort of purview and perception uh, because it was a coping mechanism. So that's a big one when it comes to behavioral genetics. Beyond that, there's this grazing behavior, this snacking behavior. So there's a couple of genes that lead to uh, what we call satiety or satiation. So we all eat until we're full. Some of us do a little bit more damage than that. Uh, we also lean for satisfaction. Like I need my mouth to be happy. And, you know, in, in terms of human sort of behavior and human survival yeah your mouth desires food to satisfy you to make sure you eat because if you don't you'll die and so we have this unique trait of you know enjoying the, uh, the multiple flavors and textures so there's genes that drive that there's a particular gene uh, fto that drives uh sort of how you look at um call it that sensation in the gut that satiety the ability to actually feel full 
some people don't have that good of a signal. That signal from the gut to the brain is slower. And you know who you are because you often go for seconds and thirds or you're at the pot scraping up the juicy stuff at the bottom after you're done your meal. It's very important whether, you, again, you have your genetic analysis done or not to understand, take a step back and look at how you're actually dealing with food. If what's on your plate that you know academically and intellectually is the right amount of whatever it is that you eat, protein, carbs, plants, but you still need more, it would be a good idea to wait and see what happens and if you get full. Because some people, again, more people than you would think have a sort of slow signal. It's not working that well. And so it takes longer to experience that satiety in the gut. It's a little trickier when it comes to the mouth. So we are designed to thrive, which means getting all the minerals and vitamin, vitamins and proteins and carbs and everything we need to survive. And so we desire variety. We desire in every meal to have a wow factor because the more wow there is, ultimately the more things and the more variety you consume. It's driven by one gene, MC4R, determines how well you deal with satisfaction in your mouth. And if you don't do that so well, these are the people that they're done with their meal, but then they're leaning on the Doritos and the cookies and they're grazing at the pantry because they never get satisfied. When you think about the person that's very particular about their food, you know, the grilled cheese sandwich needs to have a crunchy crust you know, that fried chicken can't be too oily. They're very particular because sensorily what's happening in their mouth is very important to them. Uh, that's driven by the MC4R gene. So this drives you again towards consuming too many calories. So both of these things uh, can be dealt with with creating the satiety or satiation that you don't get innately from the typical plate that everybody else is eating. How do you do that? Well, if you're driving force is variety then create the variety you know have a salty soupy crunchy sweet uh, textured combo this is why something like a trail mix is so satiating and satisfying you know when you're, you're throwing it in your mouth and you're getting the nuts the the fat the saltiness you're getting the sweetness of the berries you're getting a little bit of sour crunchy it's all in there and so it creates this ability to feel satisfied faster and continue on that journey which is what trail mix is built for the trail it's a it's a high calorie a highly satiating snack that's designed for that type of activity same thing for the gut you want to give yourself what you need which is that full feeling so you know there's old uh, religious dogma around your stomach should be not only full of food but also water so create that sense of fullness that you don't innately get genetically by consuming liquids and and uh, desirably, well, most reliably, water, so you're not taking in extra sugars or other things you don't need, to give yourself that sense of fullness that you're not going to get from the plate that you know is the right amount of food. Otherwise, you're going to lean on seconds and thirds. So, very easy hack for you to deal with this problem that so many of us have. So many of us have. So let's keep going. Other behavioral tra traits. Uh, there's some people that have difficulty. Uh, with their mood, not leaning on food as a coping mechanism, but more anticipating the next meal and their day gets structured around it. This is the definition of addiction. So keep in mind, there's some of us like myself, who you all know, that don't have a good relationship with dopamine and don't bind it so well. So it's a little more difficult to experience pleasure. If your pleasure, you know, your docket of pleasurable activity is a little cleaner well, then you're probably going to be leaning on food because there isn't much else happening for you. Um, and this is where often people that have, you know, call it the, the low dopamine expression, 
but are in kind of a clean family type environment will often get their pleasure from food. And so it's disruptive because you're looking forward to the next meal for that sense of satisfaction because you're not getting it in the in-betweens. And so when you finally get to that meal, you may overdo it. And you may overdo what value it has, what weight it creates in your daily calendar and structure. And the frustration that it may cause when you don't get the satisfaction from that meal can literally ruin your day. I've been through this where, you know, lunchtime was a ritual in our office where what we were having for lunch would almost take up more time than eating the lunch itself because it was so important to create the satisfaction. Uh, and when we didn't get it, when it was an underwhelming experience, ordered the wrong thing, brought the wrong thing for home, and you didn't get that satisfaction, that dopamine hit, it was frustrating and the rest of the day wasn't the same. So there's two layers to think about here. One is understanding how you think and mitigating the overeating uh, with overdoing reward, but also making sure you create enough reward and understanding that food is an important cent uh, uh, sort of layer of your dopamine story. Uh, and if you're not getting the right hit, you're going to do it in other ways or overeat. So give yourself that satisfaction. The, the opposite is also true uh, for those of us that lean on food. Uh, as a binger when you finally find that thing that gives you that satisfaction you get stuck in it you go back to that same restaurant three four times you're eating that same greasy thing a little too much emptying the pot not because of the lack of satiety but because of the dopamine hit and the binging so catch yourself on those things and re recognize that that's where those extra calories are coming from uh, for the people that you know tend to when it comes to family, when it comes to holidays, when it comes to these key days on the calendar where we know that I overdo it, uh, it goes back to that soul food and it goes back to the environmental response. So triggering behaviorally, and this will be more true for people that are more emotionally connected, that sense of how you used to eat, right? That, that safe space feeling of being at mama's house. And being at mama's house makes you artificially believe that you can do what you used to do. Your metabolic rate is not what it used to be. Uh, your ability to cope with fats and whatever it may be is not what it used to be. So you can't do what you used to do. And this is why so many of us struggle through the holidays. Uh, there's so much good stuff there and you throw your diet plan out the window. Uh, it's very important. So these types of uh, habit change which you know you have a new identity the way you think about food may be different but when you shift the environment you don't carry that with you so you don't you shift identities into what you used to do in that environment and this all of a sudden can create those loads of calories or something else whatever came with it that you don't do outside of that environment so very important to carry your environment with you how do you do that how do you take the habits that you've built in a certain environment, whether it's at home or whether it's at work. It'd be, it, it could also be as simple as what do I do at home or what do I do at work can be very different based on the peers, based on the environment. So you shift your habit based on the environment. What you need to do is scale those habits. This is a unique uh, thought that comes from Dr. BJ Fogg of I've learned how to do this thing here. I now need to bring it forward to somewhere else. The environment will shift my habits. It's very important when the environment incorporates other people, the only way to scale or transport your habit is to bring them into your habit, which means educating them on why you're doing it, why it's important to you, what it means to your health, what the potential risks are, which outwardly seems awkward and unusual. But once you start to do it, that in itself becomes a habit and that in itself becomes something you scale and becomes so much easier to do. And when it comes across with confidence and meaning, people will comply and they'll do it. And then all of a sudden going to mama's house for Christmas dinner, 
the dinner may look different because you've scaled your habit into her habits as well. So it's very important for you to consider that the environment itself shifts how you behave and literally will shift your identity and what you think is appropriate for what you're doing at the moment. So let's move on to other things. Um, there's another couple of key genes that are really interesting uh, that drive sort of uh, unanswered weight. So the UCP1 gene drives our ability to deal with thermal regulation. It's also looked at for metabolic rate. Uh, but there's some people that walk into a room and they're always cold. They always need a blanket. Winter just means so much more to them. Uh, and they can't handle the cold. Cold. Uh, digits, the fingers and toes are typically always cold. So the UCP1 gene determines your ability to deal with thermal regulation, that adjustment that's made typically when it comes to the cold. If you're not doing well there and you are being a superhero and exposing yourself to the cold, well, your body takes that as a threat. And it goes back again to ancestrally, well, if I'm not comfortable, there's probably a problem. And what do I do when there's a problem? Well, I store fat. Why? Because I need to be prepared for famine or whatever could potentially be coming. The body doesn't know outwardly what the problem is. It just knows that there's something going on. So people that you'll find, you know, phenotypically in your traits, if you're more prone to being having difficulty with cold weather, you will very specifically store fat on your gut. And it can happen very quickly. So that unexplained fluctuation where I did everything the same, why all of a sudden am I storing fat here? And you, you see that the, the winter fat storage that people talk about, uh, it's the cold temperature that triggers it. It's a cold temperature for some people that triggers, I need to store fat because I don't know what problem's happening, let's prepare for it. The same is true for stress. Um, but particularly that fight stress, that warrior stress, that I think battle is coming stress. So now again, go back to our ancestors. When they were in this fight mode that I need to be prepared to fight for something, that usually literally meant fight for something, going to battle, which was so common. And what happened when you went to battle is you had to prepare for being stabbed and cut because typically it was blades up until gunpowder a couple hundred years ago or a few hundred years ago. So our bodies, again, when we're facing that fight or flight type stress, that you know uh, acute response, will want to protect you from what it thinks is about to happen because we haven't evolved out of that yet, which is I need to be protective of the, the organs and systems from the blade. So what do I do? I start to fat, store that deep, intense brown fat, which is hard to lose again on the gut. I see it myself. When I'm going through high stress situations, I literally can see my gut change within a day. And I can also see when I'm in a relaxed state for a week or so, I can see my gut change in a day. And it's not bloating, it's the fat. I can either feel my abs or not feel my abs. And it's literally that different. And the disparity between it is that big of a gap. So understand that if you're not coping with how you deal with stress and if you're not coping with what you expose yourself to and if you're not being fair to yourself and saying well i could potentially eliminate some stress and give myself some time back maybe that means income maybe that means role in the company you're giving something up but ultimately giving yourself something back which is good health and reducing that fat problem that you think is something you want to deal with but you may be dealing with it with the wrong tool it may not be a diet problem it may not be an exercise problem so then let's speak about exercise, which is the next place we wanted to go. Uh, when it comes to exercise, you know, we look at people being bucketed 
um, and misalign to what they're designed to be. And this is very important when it comes to your weight goal. You know, it's not, I want to lose weight. It's, I want to reach the optimal for my genetic body type. And they're not all the same. So your genetic body type, you, you take two sisters, and I've talked about this before. Look, before. look at Kim Kardashian, look at Kendall Jenner. They are connected through the same mother but different fathers. So part of the genetics is different. And look at how different, minus the surgeries, right? Let's go back to their original state. Look at them when they were teenagers. There's still a big disparity between their body types. One is slender, uh, like almost slim to none female curves, and one is voluptuous. So what's happening there? You have on one side the voluptuous estrogen dominance, and on the other side the slender androgen dominance. Testosterone is driving that. So when it comes to your weight loss goals, when it comes to the body type you're trying to strive towards, if you understand your innate hormonal makeup, which before the weight came on, let's look at your teenage years, uh, which is easier for an androgen dominant person to point out than an estrogen dominant person because they may have already had that extra weight, you start to understand what your body type underneath all this stuff actually looks like and what your goal should be. That also speaks to what type of exercise you should be doing. The person that is more estrogen dominant, that is bigger, more voluptuous, and this is also true for men, was designed to put on muscle through heavy weight training. They're, they're the deadlifter, they're the bench presser, they're the squatter. They're the people that can push heavy weight and gain mass. They, might, they may not get that rip stride in muscle, so you might have the wrong goal and you're not wired for that but they can get big and strong. So if you don't want to be big and strong, then heavy weight training may be the wrong idea for you. If you're trying to fit into a certain size of gene, but you're doing deadlifting, well, then you're going to get big because that estrogen powers that pathway. It powers that muscle mass. It powers the fat mass also, the retention of fat. So if you want to be of a certain size, then again, lifting heavy weights may not be the right idea for you. It may be you know, lower intensity yoga style training or high repetition of low weights. The same is also true for the androgen dominant person. I can't seem to get big. You know, I want that dump truck, as they call it, that, you know, that curve on the back that so many women are aiming for. Well, you may need to be pushing a little bit harder, eating a little bit more calories than the estrogen dominant woman, because you're literally not designed for that. For that. Uh, but that balance of calories uh, burned versus calories taken in, you know, that gradual incremental incremental approach is very important there uh, so that you're not, uh, you're, you're building muscle as opposed to fat. So again, looking at the goal versus innate capacity will allow you to create the plan. Starting with the plan and then figuring out why you can't reach the goal that's the one-size-fits-all approach. What's missing in the middle is the innate capacity. What am I actually wired to do? Who am I genetically, hormonally, and what do I look like at my optimal? Am I Dwayne The Rock Johnson, or am I more uh, Captain America? Slightly different body types. They're both muscular. They're both at the top uh, you know, sort of fitness level, but they look very different in terms of size, mass, uh, the, the muscles, the rip, ripness or striation of the muscle. It's all very different. So understanding innate body type starts with um, hormones. This also speaks to things like cellulite. You know, there's some women that doesn't matter how fit they get, they still have this cellulite they can't deal with. What if you're estrogen dominant, you may also be estrogen toxic, uh, which is another reason why your body would want to store fat. Uh, estrogen dominant women are just much more likely, and by the way, estrogen dominant men are much more likely to have cellulite that you just can't get rid of. So 
burning fat may not be the answer because this fat isn't burnt. This is something where you need to block estrogen conversion in order to trigger cellulite reduction. And there's simple supplements that can do that. There's simple foods you can eat that can do that. But there's also simple foods and environmental exposures that can exponentially increase that, which may be out of your peer viewer awareness. Uh, and you need to think about those things. And we've talked about this so many times when it comes to hormone disruptors. So if cellulite is the problem and cellulite is driven by estrogen, it's not just the just like every other sort of fat that you're trying to eliminate on your body. This is why we give it a different name. Then all of a sudden, you need to deal with it at a very specific level, which is the estrogen blocking as opposed to the fat burning. So a very different uh, response there. Uh, now we look at the metabolization of macronutrients. There's many people that we've dealt with for whom we've had to tell them the reason they can lose weight is because they're on the keto diet, which makes no sense to them because they got on the keto diet and they, they lost fat. They instantly, and this is true for anyone that gets on a keto diet that is eliminating all starches, that is making this shift and is only eating fats, you're going to feel great in the first few weeks. Everybody will. You're going to get into ketosis. You're pumping out those ketones. Your brain feels amazing. There's no more starches in your system. There's zero glucose. So there's, you know, zero carbs. All of a sudden your muscle mass and your fat mass is reducing. So you feel like you're losing weight. It's when you get a month or so into it, if you are not a fat metabolizer, which is genetically predeterminable, there's literally one gene that you can look at that tells you how well you deal with primarily saturated fats. And if you're not doing a good job there, then how well are you going to do on an all-fat diet? And these are not things that you can sense. You don't feel the buildup, you know, or the cholesterol issues or the fat issues internally. You may see it, uh, you know, on your gut. You may see it on your body. But you're going to be tricked into like, well, I felt great. There's something else going on here. I'm not trying. I'm not working hard enough. I'm, not, I'm, I'm eating too much. It's a calorie problem. It may be a ketosis problem. It may be, sorry, a keto problem, a high fat problem. And you can look at this genetically and understand. The flip opposite is also true. How well do you metabolize starches? There's a, a, a lady that we worked with uh, who actually needed to be eating far more starches than she was because she was the ultimate starch metabolizer. Her primary and preferred uh, uh, fuel source was starch glucose that's what she did well with and if you're muscular then your body has a reservoir to store that glucose in so it's not causing you as much of that insulin spike and this is what she needed and so when she was on a keto diet she didn't feel bad because she had too much fat because she was also a good fat metabolizer she felt bad because she wasn't getting enough carbs and starches which is what her body actually needed and she started to thrive all of a sudden and the muscle mass that she was trying to increase and gain she started to hit those goals so all of a sudden you can become very specific about um, why you put on loose fat uh, in terms of your macronutrients so we mentioned something earlier that I wanted to go back to, which is toxicity. Um, it's not that well spoken of that our environmental toxins will actually cause us to gain fat and weight. So what's going on there? We again are not designed for our current reality. We are designed for a reality of a quarter million years ago and a quarter million years after that. It was only the last few hundred years that the surge in chemical usage and sort of ubiquitous, it's just everywhere, it's a part of our reality, became true. That wasn't the reality. 
even 200 years ago or 300 years ago. So what's going on is when you are exposed to all these chemicals, some of us don't detox them so well. Some of the, so us are missing key genes that drive glutathione pathways. Some of us don't deal with inflammation so well. And if the load continues, but there's nothing removing or reducing the load, the body is resilient enough to understand that I need to deal with this free radical or toxic activity in the bloodstream. So it'll actually cause you to store fat as a place to store the toxin. It's intelligent. The body knows, keep this away. Do not cause inflammation. This is the root cause of cardiovascular disease is inflammatory insults in the bloodstream causing inflammatory damage to endothelial walls, to other areas in your body uh, leading to cholesterolemia. So your body doesn't want that. It wants to keep the fat away from organs, out of the blood, because the liver can't metabolize it well for certain people or because the inflammatory response is higher in certain people, it will literally store it in fat. If you don't have enough fat, you're going to keep it. If you're trying to burn the fat, the body won't let you. And this is a big challenge where people don't think that their environmental response, the chemicals that they're eating, have anything to do with their fat retention. It's a major, major factor. So all of a sudden you can be very specific on you know what the body needs. Uh, we've dealt with people where now there's cofactors. You know, there's cofactors, again, we speak of the non sort of linear approach of this equals this and this equals that, but we have to look at uh, cofactors. And another big one is what we just spoke of in the last session, which is sleep. Those of us that don't sleep properly don't get the full benefit of our training. We don't recover, which puts us into an inflammatory state which means you're storing fat. We also don't burn fat. So a lot of the process of, you know, the toxins that may be in the fat and your body trying to clear them, you know, that, that all of a sudden isn't happening as efficiently because you're not getting enough deep sleep. So the cofactors of, I need to get deeper high quality sleep leading to fat loss, uh, this is known medically. Like if you talk about the side effects of poor sleep, it's already known medically that you know, if you're not um, sleeping properly, that you're gay, you're, it's, a, it's a key factor in obesity. This is one of the main reasons why so many Americans are obese. It's the food, it's also the lack of sleep. It's no recovery, and it's no burning or usage or elimination of the fat, the unneeded and unnecessary fat. So very important to look at the cofactors like that. The other cofactors are your gut and your gut microbiome. So when we look at the gut microbiome, we think of it as the second half of personalization. Um, your gut microbiome, kind of like blood work, is telling you what's happening today. Where are you at? It's not then telling you what's going to happen with where you're at. Meaning, if there's a certain flora that's flourishing and maybe causing an inflammatory insult, well, how is your body now dealing with that inflammatory insult? Why was there a gap between poor gut microbiome or mismatched food habits to my microbiome and then all of a sudden an inflammatory disease. What happened in the middle? This thing didn't cause the disease. There was some biology in between that led to the disease. This is highly implicit when it comes to weight because so much of our toxic insult comes from our gut and the baton gets passed 
uh, and the body and the ge genetic processes then need to make up for the inflammatory insult that's caused. And if you're not doing that well, well then all of a sudden there's fat retention and difficulty in fat loss. So let me give you an example. If you are feeding with the wrong foods, uh, the wrong gut microbiome flora that feeds off of sugar, for example, then all of a sudden that is flourishing. That, gut microbiome, that, that portion or that particular strain is flourishing and it may not necessarily be the strain that is healthy for you. But you're also not feeding the strain you need. And so it's not getting what it needs to flourish. So ancestrally, you're not designed for literally the excrement of that bad flora, that toxic excrement that you were not designed for. All excrement is toxic, but you're designed to cope with certain and you're not designed to cope with certain because you just never had to ancestrally. And so if that's the case for you, then all of a sudden you're having this you know, toxic metabolite, or I shouldn't say metabolite, literally excrement from this flora that's flourishing because you're eating foods that were not part of your ancestral diet that your gut microbiome was not designed for. And you're, you're causing this inflammatory insult to enter your bloodstream. This is where we see comorbidities like things like fibromyalgia. And why all of a sudden is my gut microbiome and my food the source of my fibromyalgia? Well, the truth is you already had fibromyalgia but it just got exaggerated because of the inflammatory response. So that's just one example of how misalignment and these cofactors can lead to inflammatory diseases that then lead to hormones, uh, detox pathways being out of whack, leading to fat retention issues, especially in women. And this is why so many women post-pregnancy, uh, you know, I just don't understand. Why can't I lose the weight? Uh, I used to be able to do it. I can't now. Well, hormones have changed. Uh, your body now is operating, you know, not in pre-fertility stages, not post, you know, kind of womb stage. And it has, a, it feels it has a different purpose. So it's different, doing different things with hormones and all of a sudden uh, you're retaining fat. So it's important to consider all these cofactors. Now, people ask us, you know, what should I take? What supplement should I take? It isn't always that easy. You know, in fact, um, when it comes to supplementation, we don't look at um, what's the fat burning supplement it's more like let's pinpoint your behavioral genomics let's pinpoint your satiety or satiation uh, let's pinpoint some of the other things we talked about and deal with that we're not giving you a pill and we're not asking you to seek out a pill that helps you burn fat although there are there are things that work you can take some caffeine and all of a sudden you're acting at a different level or behaving at a different level and there's more metabolic activity you know, you can take, um, um, there's certain ingredients that boost metabolic rate and all of a sudden your met metabolism is boosted. But if you can deal with the innate core uh, behavioral issues, which is we find so many people when you reach that plateau, it, it's very easy to lose that first little bit and it's very easy to add that first little bit of muscle. The plateau is the challenge. The plateau is where people get stuck and start to seek help. I don't know why I'm stuck here. And the plateaus is typically where you're not recognizing the behavioral elements. You know, leaning on food as a coping mechanism, grazing, not getting satisfied, the satiety isn't there. Um, that's typically the things that get missed uh, and where you need to focus. And if you do that, then you don't need that supplement. You don't need to jack your metabolic rate up and uh, cause sort of harm to yourself with over-caffeinating yourself. Uh, you can do things that are a little more organic and holistic in nature. Uh, 
there are things you can do in terms of uh, satiety and satiation. Uh, and it goes back again to creating that variety. So the variety is highly important. You know, when you have that Thai food and it, it gives you that wow factor because in that sip of that cow soy or whatever you put into your mouth, there's it's soupy, there's coconut, it's sweet, it's crunchy, it's meaty. It has a little bit of everything and it's giving you that satiety up front. Um, so that's where you want to focus on doing that. Whether you have a kind of a, a, an issue or not, this will just help you eat less if that's the goal. Uh, so let's move on to another area. Uh, so we look at micronutrients as another core factor uh, in your overall uh, sort of body type, weight, um, uh, fat retention, muscle gaining. Uh, there's people that often miss out an important micronutrient called zinc. Uh, zinc is super important because it's highly implicit in your glucose levels and that whole insulin response uh, mechanism and pathway. And we think of insulin responses, let's reduce the sugar. Well, if you're not getting the right amount of zinc, then you're not efficiently uh, dealing with your insulin response. It's actually reduced. Um, and now all of a sudden, your ability to have what we call insulin resistance, resistance is elevated and you're not dealing with it well. And that, again, all of what we're talking about today is plateaus. We're not trying to give you the advice that already exists out there. We're trying to fill the holes and gaps of the things that you may not know that genetics can inform. And zinc is one of the big ones. So that may be the trick where you're, you know, add some fiber. You know, whenever you're eating your starches, add some fiber because it mitigates that insulin response, right? It's not, it's not giving you that spike anymore. Also add some zinc and you might find there's more fluidity to your uh, insulin response and you're having less issue uh, with, um, with insulin spike and sugar. Uh, vitamin D, super important. And we've talked about vitamin D before and how it's a complex pathway that's not just about how much I took but how much uh, I transported to the cell and how much I bound. So why do I single it out? Because 10% of your biochemistry is dependent on it. So if you're relying on biochemical pathways that are doing things like uh, antioxidation, uh, doing things like mitochondrial health, uh, doing things like, uh, and I'm talking about any per energy production when I talk about mitochondrial health, uh, then all of a sudden lack or you know, not enough vitamin D will cause these processes to be less efficient. And let's single out mitochondrial health. Well, if you're not innately creating the energy that you need to do the things you're doing, especially if you're training, just because your vitamin D levels are low, well, then you're not going to get the outcome that you desire in the gym. You're going to push a little less weight. You're going to run a little less time. Uh, you're going to maybe skip days because you just feel down and frustrated. Um, these are areas where understanding your relationship with vitamin D can change the cofactors that lead to the fat retention, the behavioral issues, uh, the bio biochemistry failures, because again, 10% of your human biochemistry is dependent on this one micronutrient. So if you're not taking enough, then imagine what's the, the havoc that's being wreaked inside your body. So these are some of the key areas where we think of uh, weight and body type differently. Again, it starts with not thinking of it as my weight, but more thinking about is my body composition, right? Your ability to deal with um, fat loss and muscle growth as per what you're designed to do, 
not as per to some superficial goal that came from an image you saw that maybe is not how you're designed. And if you reach the optimal version of yourself, really you're going to reach optimal health and optimal sort of vitality, the way you feel. Uh, and then you'll realize that that goal maybe wasn't as important as the goal you just achieved. Uh, the goal of reaching the optimal version of yourself. That starts again with mood and behavior, starting with your brain and how you perceive uh, you know, the environment around you and how environmental toxins may cause things, uh, the micro and macronutrients, what you eat, how you metabolize, uh, what co-ingredients you need like zinc to help you metabolize, how you deal with insulin response and fat metabolization. Should you be on a vegan diet? One thing we didn't even touch on, the key gene, FUT2, a methylation gene that determines how well you break down vegan protein sources. And if you don't do that so well, the inflammatory insult you're causing your gut, which then leads to that, you know, uh, domino effect of inflammatory insult leaking, bleeding into your blood and then causing fat retention for other reasons. So remember that your body understands the insult. It may not understand where it came from or what, what it is specifically. And so it triggers all these coping mechanisms like storing fat, just like when I said that a stress response can trigger fat in your belly, belly to, to, to protect you from the blade in the battle, even though there's no battle. Your body is responding to what it feels, not knowing what the source is. Right? It's responding to the stress, not knowing what the source is, but understanding that for the bulk of our existence, the stress was battle, so it's probably that. And it's going to take us, you know, tens if not hundreds of generations to shift the way our body thinks. So all in all, our message today was when it comes to weight and fat, again, there's a unique way to look at it. Go ahead and do all of the conventional stuff also because that is going to give you your immediate bang for your buck. Most people hit a plateau. It's the plateau where genetic insights or personalization insights can truly drive why you're stuck, why all those YouTube videos, all that coaching, all that stuff you're trying to do doesn't get you past the plateau because you're solving the wrong problem. It's the people that get stuck at that plateau that have a very unique problem that need to deal with something in a different way. But again, until you've understood what the unique problem is, you can't. So thank you again for listening, you guys, uh, and hope to see you next time.